0: What's stopping you, you, you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? What's stopping you? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? What's you? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You, 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 you? you are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've got a question or two about the Catholic faith and you're not quite sure uh, where to get the answers. You know, just before the program uh, today, I, I took a phone call from a, a fellow who is a non-Catholic. He just didn't know who to talk to. You can talk to us. Here's our phone number, 833 833- 288 EWTN. That's 833 288 3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code 1 and then 205 271. 2985 and of course you can always send us an email the address for that ctc at ewtn.com if you're watching us on tv today that's uh, probably the best way for you to contact the show ctc at ewtn.com charles beery is our producer matt kabinski is our phone screener jeff burson's on social media if you want to ask a question via youtube or facebook we're streaming on both those platforms right now just put your question in the comments box Jeff will see that, he'll shoot it to us here in Studio One, and off we go. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom,
2: it is good to see you today. Well,
1: it is good to be seen. They say, my wife likes to say, it's it's better to be seen than viewed. You've, you've probably heard that one. Yeah, we'll just move on. Here's an interesting objection posed by Mike. Mike says, I know a lot of people who are a lot more swayed by the problem of evil than by evidence for God and the Gospels. Is it morally safe to conclude that the problem of evil is insurmountable, and therefore any religion that claims a perfectly good God must be wrong? And again, that's from Mike.
2: Yeah, I don't know what you mean by morally safe. I don't know what you mean by morally safe. Hmm. I'll give you my take on the problem of evil. Okay. The, the, the traditional Christian answer for the problem of evil is that God has a sufficient reason to permit evil. Okay. And just because we are not necessarily in a position to assess his sufficient reasons mm-hmm. doesn't mean that he can't have a sufficient reason. Now, I think that from a logical point of view, I think that, that works. I think, it, I, mean, I think it resolves the logical problem of evil. If God has a sufficient reason, he doesn't have to tell us what that sufficient reason is. It's, it's enough that it's sufficient, right? Uh, that does nothing to resolve the existential problem of evil which is the, the, the individual's lived experience of evil mm-hmm. and, and the challenge of faith in the goodness of God when one is confronted with horrific evil. And to me, it's compelling that the Bible is filled with testimony from people who have faith in God and who find that faith extraordinarily challenged, very, very difficult in face of their suffering. The Psalms are full of this. Psalm 88, probably my favorite Psalm in the Bible, mm. is nothing other than a complaint that God seems to be entirely absent from the life of a man whose whose situation has been reduced to rubble, and and it, it's it's it, it he leaves you hanging. Yeah, he leaves you hanging, and so from my point of view, that the, the, the Scripture canonizes that complaint, it legitimizes the sense that I don't see God anywhere, and and I don't know what to do about this, right? And so that the the sort of platitudinous, happy-clappy response to suffering. Hey, cheer up, you know, bucko, God's got this, it's all going to turn out well. That's the wrong pastoral response, Mm. because sometimes when you're confronted with horrific evil, the only thing you can do with another human being is to say, I don't know why, I'm sorry, but I'm here with you.
1: Yeah. And uh, Mike, we hope that's helpful for you. Thanks so much for your question. Here's an email now from Debbie. Could you recommend a book to send to my stepdaughter as to why to become a Catholic, thank you, love your program. It's one of the reasons I converted six years ago.
2: Yeah, thank you. Uh, the, the difficulty with book for my stepdaughter on why to be Catholic is that I don't know anything about your stepdaughter. yeah, right. And so I don't know what kind of literature would be interesting or compelling to her. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean there are there are hundreds of books that are intros to the Catholic faith. Uh, Father Thomas Joseph White has a really interesting, text, uh, this just kind of a a basic introduction to Catholic doctrine that I Uh think is very helpful. Um, I think it's called In the Light of Christ. Um, uh, You know, more polemically, Carl Keating's book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, a lot of people have gotten a big bang out of that when it Mm -hmm. is a matter of comparing Catholicism to other forms of Christianity. Uh, You know, memoirs like Scott Hahn's book, "Rome, Sweet Home. Which uh, which tell the story of a person's conversion, you know, and what would have motivated him in that instance? Uh-huh. So it really kind of depends on the kind of personality she has. Is she, is she interested in doctrine? Would she be more drawn to a personal story? I mean, my favorite autobiography in the history of Catholicism is Augustine's Confessions.
1: Yeah. But
2: that's not a book for everybody because the second half gets pretty philosophical. So, you know, it kind of depends on the step to order.
1: Uh, Debbie, thanks so much uh, for your email. And here's one now from Dominic. My question for Dr. Anders is, who is the us- and our in genesis 1 verse 26 is god implying that he isn't alone or is he referring to something he had already created
2: um yeah that's a good question i don't know that there's a definitive answer to it um it, it could be read in a number of ways i think the safest way it, it, you can't read it in any way that contradicts catholic dogma mm-hmm. and you know, we teach the unicity of god there is but one god and god is the source and origin of all things and so you can't you can't read that text in any way that would undercut the unicity of God or or his or God being the ultimate source the the the, the first principle of all of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, some have read that as a kind of royal we, you know, like um, we have decided that yes. we're going to have you know beef with tea. We dinner, are not you know? amused. We are not amused. Exactly. Um, uh, you know, uh, fourth Lateran Council taught that God created the material and immaterial worlds in one p- moment. And so the angelic hosts, for example, uh, would uh, uh, would have preceded at least aspects, not all of the physical creation, but at least aspects of the physical creation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, could God be in dialogue with the angelic hosts? I mean, that's a possibility. But uh, honestly, uh, it, I don't know that there's one definitive answer.
1: Dominic, thanks so much uh, for your email. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, here's the address, CTC at EWTN.com. A great way to contact the show if you're watching us on TV today. CTC at EWTN.com. We try to tackle uh, two or three emails, sometimes successfully, on each of our uh, live programs. And then uh, once a month or so, we'll... uh, Grab a whole bunch of emails and answer uh, all of them from the mailbag. Again, the address ctc at ewtn.com. In a moment, we're going to be talking with Bob in Northeast Washington. Uh, calls are coming in right now. We do have a line open for you at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, maybe you'd like to explain to us what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. 833 288 it's called a Communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Do stay with us. It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We're going to begin today with Bob in Northeast Washington listening on the EWTN app, uh, a free download for you. Hey there, Bob. What's on your mind today, sir?
0: Yeah, good day, gentlemen. Yeah, I'm I'm calling from the mountains of Northeast Washington. Beautiful. difference, I live on top of a mountain. Ah. Uh, it's gorgeous there. Also, storming, but but anyway, um, my my question is on infant baptism, and I, I'm just uh, really curious about this. I've always been curious. I heard a gentleman call the other day that, you know, I, I think he was trying to refer that being baptized was such a wonderful thing, and why Catholics don't uh, submerge for baptisms, and and uh, it is a wonderful thing to be baptized. But I've always been curious about infant baptism. Uh, you know, it appears in the Bible that Jesus was baptized uh, not by sprinkling, or, or was Jesus sprinkled, or was Jesus baptized as an infant? Uh, I just got all kinds of questions about this. And then, then one last comment, uh, uh, you still haven't convinced me to be a Catholic yet, but, but please don't stop trying.
1: Ah. ah, beautiful.
2: Very good, thank you. All right, so interesting thing about uh, about baptism in Scripture, and that is, you, you said it. it seems that Jesus wasn't baptized by sprinkling. Well, uh, I would point out that Scripture actually gives no account anywhere about the mode of baptism. There is no physical description of the rite anywhere in the Bible. Uh, Sometimes our Baptist friends want to point to the meaning of the word baptizo and claim that it means to immerse. And anyone, if you've ever studied any language at all, English, Greek, it doesn't matter what, you know Mm -hmm. that etymology doesn't give you meaning. There are all kinds of words in English that don't mean the, what their etymology was. Mm-hmm. Right? Etymology is just a historical question about where the word came from. It doesn't tell you at all what it meant to the people who used it. meaning of a word is its use. And, uh, and so it's not determinative to say, well, baptismo means immersed. No, it doesn't. Baptismo means to baptize. And Scripture is utterly silent on the mode of baptism. So if you, if you want information, you want authoritative information on the mode of baptism, you must look to an extra scriptural source. And we have that in the Catholic Church. It's called sacred tradition. Yes, we do. And in sacred tradition, there are three acceptable modes of baptism, although there aren't three today, but I'll tell you why in a minute. Uh, immersion is an acceptable, valid form of baptism in the Catholic Church. So is pouring. And while aspersion or sprinkling is, is considered valid, it's not licit. So Catholic priests don't baptize by sprinkling. They they pour water over the head, right, typically. Um, but uh, but again, the um, the question of mode, scripture itself doesn't answer. You can only get to that through through sacred tradition. Um, Jesus would not have been baptized as an infant, um, and the baptism to which Jesus submitted was different from the baptism to which we submit. So Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. In the teaching of the Catholic faith, the baptism of John the Baptist is not Christian baptism. It's a different baptism. John himself said that it was a different baptism. He says, I baptize you with water, but after me comes one mightier than I who will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. It's a different baptism. And when, in, in the book of Acts, the Christians met the disciples of John, they said, Have you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, well, we don't know about any Holy Spirit. They said, whose baptism did you receive? They said, John's. And they said, well, you need Jesus' baptism. You need the Holy Spirit. Um, when Jesus was baptized by John, he, as it were, well, he took over the the movement that John had started. John had called people to repentance in view of the coming kingdom of God and to a baptism of repentance. And it was, it was telling that John chose to perform that rite in the Jordan River. Why did he do it in the Jordan River? Well, symbolically, John was like a new Joshua, or pointing to a new Joshua, who would lead the people into a new promised land. And since the Jordan was that barrier that marked the entrance of the people of God into the promised land, he was symbolically calling upon Israel to reconstitute itself as the people of God and specifically warned them not to count upon their genetic ancestry. He said, don't say that we have Abraham as our father because God can raise up children for Abraham from these very stones Mm -hmm. rather bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. It was a change of life that he needed to see to constitute this new people of God. Jesus takes over the leadership of that movement. And he is the Joshua who leads us into the promised land and explicitly establishes 12 disciples, they're obviously an analog to the 12 tribes of Israel. He is reconstituting the people of God, but on a new basis now, through faith in the Holy Spirit. Christian baptism is the rite of entrance into that New Covenant community.
1: Bob, is that helpful for you?
0: Yeah, that was actually a great answer. Um, although I'm a little curious about Philip and the, and the Enoch. I mean, did he, uh, did he dunk them, or did he uh, spread them? We don't know. Him?
2: We don't know. The text doesn't say... The text, the the eunuch says, "Hey, here's water. Let's baptize me." That's all it says. Now, you know, I've I've seen a lot of puddles on the side of the road. (laughs) Very few of them were the kind of puddles where I could get immersed.
1: Good point. All right, and Bob, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at eight three three. 288 ewtn That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. Let's go now to John, a first-time caller from uh, Mississippi, I believe, here, uh, checking us out on YouTube. John, what's on your mind today?
0: Well, hello, Dr. Andrews. Uh, it's, it's a
2: privilege to, uh, to speak with you. I've been listening sporadically for a couple of years now, and I really enjoy the program. Uh, I'm a Protestant, uh, and the question I have today is, I understand that there are about eight books of Maccabees. And I was wondering why the Catholic canon has only the first two. Um, yeah, thank you. So, I mean, I'm going to give you a very unsatisfactory answer. Uh. Uh, and the unsatisfactory answer is that the Church concluded that only those two were were inspired by God, uh. right? Um, there is a lot of literature from what Protestants would call the intertestamental period, but Catholics would call the Second Temple period. A lot of Jewish literature in the Second Temple period of uh, varying degrees of authority that were regarded by, pe- by contemporaries as e- either authoritative or not, or, or inspiration inspired or not, uh, not all of which made it into the Christian canon, um, so, but some of which are alluded to. I'll give you another example, the book of Enoch, for example. The book of Jude, the New Testament book of Jude, cites Enoch, mm-hmm. even though Enoch is not in the biblical canon, but it is for the Ethiopians. The Ethiopians include Enoch in their canon of the Old Testament, but mm-hmm. the only, they're the only Christian group that does.
1: Fascinating. Hey, John, thanks so much for your call. It's called a Communion here on EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, love to talk with you today at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Tim is listening to us in Idaho on the Great Salt and Light Radio. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind today, sir?
0: So I'm asking about the Sabbath and
1: whether or not Constantine changed it and the Catholic Church had the authority to change it from Saturday to
2: Sunday. Um, yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. So Constantine certainly did not change the Sabbath. Um, uh, for that matter, neither did the Christian Church. The Sabbath uh, still remains Saturday, and that is the day that Jews go to synagogue and and literally obey the law of Moses that they hallow the seventh day of the week. So that's, as far as I know, that's what Jews have been doing for a long time, and they still do that, and that's the Sabbath. Christians don't celebrate the Jewish Sabbath. So we didn't change the Sabbath. We don't celebrate that feast. We celebrate the Lord's Day, which is the first day of the week, the day upon which the early church met to commemorate the resurrection of our Lord. It's not the Jewish Sabbath. It's not the Jewish Sabbath kicked one day forward in the calendar. It is a different feast. Now, there is continuity with the Sabbath. Continuity is not the same thing as identity. Uh, the Christian church understands the Lord's Day to be, as it were, the fulfillment of the Sabbath. You know, the book of Hebrews talks about there still being a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Christ is our rest. It's the fulfillment of the Jewish Sabbath, not its not its uh, continuation, you know, just moved one day on the calendar. Um, so the way that Christians celebrate the Lord's day bears some resemblance to the Jewish Sabbath, so mm-hmm. we still value rest from work and time with family and time for worship and things of that sort. But some of those elements are different from the Jewish Sabbath. So, if you read the Sabbath commandment, there's nothing in the Sabbath commandment about worshipping God. The Sabbath commandment for the Jews was—well, I should say about sacrifice, which is the way they worshipped. The Sabbath commandment for Jews was about resting from labor, mm. right? They, they worshipped God every day. They offered sacrifice in the temple every day. Yeah. It was specifically a day to stop working. But the focus of the Christian feast is on worship specifically. So worship is a higher priority than rest per se, and the way we do that mostly is to gather to celebrate the Lord's resurrection through the memorial of his death and resurrection, which is the Eucharist.
1: Tim, we're glad we could clarify that for you. Thanks so much for your call from Idaho, our great partner there, Salt and Light Radio. It's called a communion here on EWTN. We have one line open, uh, very busy phones today at 833. 833- 288-EWTN, that's 833-288-3986. Maria, a first-time caller in New York, listening on EWTN television. Hello, Maria, what's on your mind today?
0: Hello, Dr. Anders. Um, I was wondering, I I pray a lot, and especially the rosary, and I do the Apostle Creed, and it says that he descends into hell. What What do he do there?
2: Yeah, he, thanks, you know? I can answer that. He
0: preached. He
2: preached. That's what the sacred scriptures says in First Peter chapter three, verse nineteen, that Christ preached to the spirits in prison. Those were the, the the fathers of the old covenant that were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. He went down there and said, "Here I am, guys. You're it's uh, it's it's get out of jail time."
1: Yeah. Very good. Maria, and it's not the abode of the damned.
2: It's not the abode of the damned. It's not the hell of the damned.
1: Glad we could clear that up as well. Maria, thanks so much for your call today. Call to Communion on EWTN. Adam, a first-time caller from Ottoville, Ohio, listening on the great Annunciation Radio. And uh, Adam, what's on your mind today, sir?
3: Uh, Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Um, My question has to do with, I've been listening to a series on Hallow, uh, about near death experiences. And in a lot of these experiences, um particularly with younger children, they'll experience heaven, um, or what they think is heaven anyways, and they'll they'll come into a relationship or um should I say it, they'll meet family members who have long passed years ago that they've never met before. Um and I've heard of this before But then I got to thinking, um, I thought on your show at one point, I heard, you know, the the Catholic belief is that when we die and go to Heaven, that there are no relationships. Um, In other words, husband and wife are no longer husband and wife in Heaven, um, was my understanding, I guess. I'm just wondering if you could clarify on that.
2: Um, Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. So, a couple things. First of all, what someone purports to have experienced in a, in a near-death experience, some out-of-body experience where they claim to have gone to heaven and had some sort of experiences and come back, is of no more significance for our conception of heaven than, than you know, the musing of science fiction writers or J.R. Or Tolkien or something, or what you might find in the back of a Marvel comic book. I mean, it r- really, it is just does not matter at all for Catholic dogma, because all of these claims are what we call private revelation, and that's not how we... We don't derive doctrine from private revelation. We derive doctrine from the public revelation that Christ gave to the apostles and the tradition of of the ancient church. Uh, That's where we get the dogmatic content of Christian faith. And if someone has a private revelation, I mean, those kinds of accounts are interesting, of course, and they always, you know, they they draw a crowd and they're sensationalistic, and maybe some of them are veridical. My suspicion is the vast majority of them are not, uh, and so we put no stock in them. Um, Now, if, if one happens to you... Obviously, you're going to put stock in it because it happened to you, you know, Uh, but uh, but it publicly we don't put stock in them. Um, Interestingly, when my um, when my dad was a very young man, he had a, a bizarre mystical vision and um, my father was as stable emotionally stable like you know no affect one plane yeah common sense kind of guy he was not the sort of person to have mystical visions at all at all at all it was the only one he had in his entire life but it involved some heavenly visitors and when he was dying i remember asking him i mean we're all eager for this kind of thing i sure. said dad he says yes yeah. so you remember when you were like 22 you had those guys show up in your bedroom he goes yep I said if they come again at the end, would you let me know? Like, I'd really like to know, you know, if they, some same guys show back up again. He said, like, sure. Either they didn't show or he didn't tell me, you know. But we all have that natural curiosity. Oh, sure. Right? But, uh, but if they had shown up, it, no matter what they said, it wouldn't have changed the content of my Catholic faith. Now, as, for, as far as relationships are concerned, of course we have relationships in heaven. Of course we have relationships in heaven. We don't have marriage. Matthew 22 teaches we don't have marriage. Uh-huh. We, we do have relationships. So, And not having marriage doesn't mean you won't know your wife. So assuming I make it to heaven, assuming my wife makes it to heaven, I have every expectation that when I meet my wife in heaven, I'll say, Hey, there's Jill. We were married on earth. We had five kids together. We had grandchildren together. Remember all those good times that we had together. Remember our whole life story? Wasn't that neat? Isn't it cool how all that led us to here, to the life of heaven? Let's rejoice in that. That'll be a unique relationship. It'll be different from Tom. When I see Tom in heaven, I'll say, hey, Tom, remember when we used to do Call to Communion together on planet Earth and all the people we got to talk to about the Catholic faith, isn't that neat stuff? Well, of course we're going to have relationships, but we're not going to have marriage. We won't be procreating. We won't be having babies and growing them up in heaven.
1: Right, right. Okay. And, uh, Adam, thanks so much uh, for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go quickly to Dustin in Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan, listening on Holy Family Radio. Dustin, what's on your mind today, sir?
0: Oh, I just found a book. Um, it's called The uh, the Apocrypha.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I was just curious if it was... Catholic origin or yeah no? appreciate
2: it <clears throat> so there the word Apocrypha is applied to lots of different books and I don't know which one you have right because there is there's uh, what well, there's something called the Old Testament Apocrypha there's something called the New Testament Apocrypha um, and uh, and there are books that Catholics consider biblical mm-hmm. that Protestants think are apocryphal uh, in other words <laughs> not authoritative so I, I I'd really have to know what's in the book to tell you what the status of the book is, if it has, if it includes the books of First and Second Maccabees and Judith and Tobit um, and the Wisdom of Solomon and Sirach, uh-huh. uh, it, it, then it's going to be the Catholic. It's part of the Catholic canon of the Bible. If it has other titles in there, I don't know what they might be, but then it probably isn't part of the Catholic Canada, the Bible
1: all right and uh, Dustin thanks so much for your call today glad you're li- listening to us on Holy Family Radio in a moment we're going to talk with Nick in uh, Silverton Oregon we have a couple lines open for you and if you call right now hopefully we can get your uh, your program your call in today's program 833-288-EWTN that's 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion stay with us It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, congratulations going out to another longtime member of our EWTN radio family. It's Real Presence Radio celebrating their 19th year with EWTN. I'm, uh, literally, they began with one computer in a closet at a Newman Center, I believe in Grand Forks, they are now heard on 27 radio stations throughout North and South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. Congratulations to Lynn DeVitt and her great team there at Real Presence Radio from all your friends here at EWTN. Let's go back to the phones now and talk with Nick, a first-time caller in Silverton, Oregon, listening today on Mother Day Radio. Nick, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, good morning, guys! Howdy. Um, I'm wondering, uh, I'm a
0: returning Catholic after about 50 years being away, and uh, Sunday during the Gospel, they said that you should call no one Father other than God. Why do we call a priest Father?
2: Yeah, thank you. So if you if you look at that passage in context, you'll find that Jesus says, don't let people call you Rabbi, don't let them call you Father— um, Rabbi, of course, means teacher. Mm-hmm. And and the, the larger context suggests that what Christ has in mind is he's exhorting people not to seek offices for the purpose of personal recognition, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so if someone, for example, wanted to become a Catholic priest because they love the idea of being the center of attention, of having authority, of having men call them father, mm-hmm. you know— and so it was about their own self-aggrandizement, then that individual would fall under the condemnation that Christ articulates here, in the same way that if somebody wanted to become a teacher— I wanted to become a teacher. Did I? When I became a teacher, I used to teach in the university, taught in uh, grammar school and high school as well— um, did I like the idea of, uh, of kids calling me, uh, you know, Dr. Anders or teacher? Or you better believe I did, yeah. right? That's appealing to you. You sure. know, you like to have a position of importance and have people look up to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but Christ says, if that's my only motive for being a teacher, then woe to me, right? I should mm. be there because I, I want to help people. I want It's a work of mercy. I'm there to be at the service of my students, or if I'm a priest, at the service of my congregation. So it's really an exhortation to the kind of disposition we bring to leadership. And the, the wider New Testament in the Bible shows that father is often used perfectly legitimately as a term of endearment and respect. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be sure, Jesus didn't intend to forbid us calling our dads dad, right? That, that wasn't ruled out. Mm-hmm. And, and, and even, even religious leaders are referred to as father in, in sacred scripture. So when Elijah gets carried up to heaven in a whirlwind, for example, what is it that Elisha says to him? My father, my father— the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Um, why does Paul tell the Corinthians, I have become your father through the gospel, and to Timothy, Timothy, my son? Mm-hmm. So we, we see that Scripture itself doesn't stick to that rule in a legalistic way.
1: Yeah. Once again, all about the context. All about the context. You better believe it. Nick, is that helpful for you, sir? Yeah, oh, yeah that helped a lot. Thanks, right. guys. Hey, thanks so much uh, for your call. It's a uh, call to communion here on EWTN. A couple lines open for you at 833 833- 288 EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program. 833 288 3986. Kathy is calling from Massachusetts on the EWTN app. Hey there, Kathy. What's on your mind today?
0: Hi. um, Thanks for taking my call. Um, I have my son just started college and he wants to study the history of religion. theology, but I don't know—can you recommend a book or yes. um, a college? Uh, I You know, when you're studying history, you never know what the real <laughs> the rewriting history a lot these days.
2: Um, yeah, so, sure. Yeah. So he, he wants to study world religions as his primary area of investigation in college, and he wants to pick a college based on that curriculum. Is that the idea?
0: Well, he— he's in college right now he wants to study the history of religion
2: sure sure and sure i can help you there yeah I, that that's what i did right so my degree is actually in the history of religious thought and uh when i was in graduate school and that included primarily christianity and judaism but but i studied world religions as well and i mm-hmm. thought it was a very beneficial exercise the world religion is part of the world that we live in yeah. uh you know the hindus and buddhists and muslims they're our neighbors uh, we need to know about them. We want to be understand the world we live in, so it's a very profitable thing for Catholics to study what other people believe, right? Um, uh, so here's some recommendations for you. Um, the first text I'm going to give you is is dry as dust, but I think is a, an essential starting point for taking up the study of world religion, and it's a book not about any particular religion, but about the whole process of how do you go about studying world religions and Mm -hmm. how do you do it objectively and scientifically and not get swayed by a bunch of woo-woo stuff, all right? And the book is by a man named Robert Baird, B-A-I-R-D, and uh, the title of the book is Category Formation and the History of Religions. Wow. Category Formation, and it's it's about what do we mean when we use the word religion— uh, in reference to this to this body of literature and this subject matter of study, and it was the guy who wrote it, Robert Bad, was a friend of mine. He's dead now. Um, he was himself a Protestant Christian who tried to work out how can I how can I study world religions in a way uh, without letting my own confessional commitments or those of the people that I'm studying prejudice me one way or the other. I need to have kind of as an objective historical account as I can and this book is the, is the account that he gave of that process, helped me enormously. I actually gave that book to two of my own sons when they were in high school. I said, here, read this book, and you'll think more clearly about the phenomenon of world religion and about category formation in general, which is essential to any intellectual exercise. So any college kid who's interested in that subject ought to start with Bob Baird's book, Category Formation. The other book is also by Robert Baird. Um, and uh, this is just going to get him into the literature of some of the other traditions, not okay. all of them. Uh-huh. Um, it's a, it's just a textbook. It's called Indian and Far Eastern Religious Traditions by Robert D. Baird, the A I R D. And um, I'm not sure if it's still in print, but I know it's still available. You can probably get it on Amazon, a used copy. You know, I've got a couple of them in my house, and, I, you know, so— That's uh, Those are my two recommendations.
1: Kathy, thanks so much for your call. We hope that's helpful for your son. And if you need more information on that, you can listen again to the podcast by going to ewtn.com forward slash radio. Look for the word podcast. That'll take you to our wonderful site called EWTN Podcast Central. A lot of great podcasts for you, including this program called Communion with Dr. David Anders. Let's go now to David, a first-time caller in Indianapolis, listening on the great Catholic Radio Indy. Hey, David, what's on your mind today, sir?
0: Hi, Dr. Anders. Hey, uh, what a privilege. Thank you. My question is, over the last six months, I've been felt called to become a Catholic, and I've been traveling back and forth from Ohio. My mom has pancreatic cancer, and mm. I can't attend RCIA classes, Um I have been I've been praying the Lord's Prayer and, and saying three Hail Marys. I don't know if this is right. Should I talk to my priest? What should I do? You know, I just feel stuck.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate it. You are not alone. You are not alone. A lot of people have been in your situation, folks that want to become Catholic, but it is a physical impossibility for them to attend to RCA. So here's what I recommend you do. Absolutely reach out to the pastor of the parish that you want to go to and mm-hmm. say, I absolutely want to become Catholic, and I absolutely can't attend to RCA, and here's why. I am perfectly willing to be instructed. I'm not trying to dodge, you know, the irresponsibility here. That's yeah. It's not about that. So if you would appoint any other way for me to receive instruction that I, that I can do, and, you know, I have advised a lot of people that if your pastor doesn't have time, he might be willing to appoint a deacon to the job of working with you individually to give you instruction in the Catholic faith and verify that you've understood what you need to understand. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, a deacon or a qualified layperson can take on that job. Um, and uh, that's how I came in the faith. I didn't go through RCA, and uh, and I, I got private instruction from a priest um, via some tapes. He said, "Here, go listen to these cassette tapes." You know, so that's what I did. And um, uh, so, yeah. And now I will add that sometimes, you know, priests uh, they are they're uh, they're funny animals. Priests, right? And so you may find that you you know you ask this of your pastor, and if he's a certain kind of fellow, he might go, "Oh no, it's got to be RCA or nothing." And I've I've known some priests to take that line. And uh, if you get that line, my advice is, if first you don't succeed, try, try again, and you go to the next parish down the road, and you try again, right? Sure. And you will find—I promise you, if you are persistent, like the like the persistent widow with the unjust judge, right? If you knock, uh, it will eventually be opened to you, and you will find somebody who will, who will instruct you and let you be received into the church.
1: David, thank you so much for your call. Uh, please know we will keep you and your mom in our prayers. That is a tough one. Uh, Thanks again for your call. Call to Communion here on EWTN. Uh, Here's a question now from Joe watching us on YouTube. Joe says, if someone doesn't believe in God and lives a life of sin and then completely wholeheartedly repents just before death, aren't they saved by, quote, faith alone?
2: Nope, not at all. Because if they wholeheartedly repent before death, then they have fundamentally changed their life. They've turned from sin to righteousness. Okay. And according to the teaching of the Catholic faith, what happens at justification is that through faith, God infuses righteousness into us, that he moves us from the state of sin to the state of righteousness, and we become actually righteous. It doesn't mean that you—I mean, sometimes Protestants get the idea that Catholics think—this is incorrect, of course—sometimes uh-huh. Protestants think, that Catholics think, that to be saved, you have to rack up— a kind of laundry list of good deeds, and you know, rather like the Egyptian god of the dead, that that God is going to you know show up with his green eye shade and his and uh, his accounting books, and he's going to count up the good deeds and the bad deeds and weigh them in a balance, and if the good deeds outweigh the bad, you get it? Doesn't work that way. That's not the Catholic view, right? There are religions that teach that. Catholicism is not one of them. When you repent and you're forgiven, you're justified. All your past sins are forgiven, and the moment you have sanctifying grace in your soul, God has put His love into you. Right, So you, you, you effectively love God and love neighbor, even if that hasn't actually been lived out in any concrete good works. Hmm. The, the baby who leaves the baptismal font it intrinsically merits eternal life. Now, how is that different from the Protestant view of faith alone? Right, The Protestant view of faith alone teaches that there is not an intrinsic change in your character such that you now merit eternal life. On the Protestant view... Even the justified sinner objectively merits damnation. God just doesn't give you what you deserve. Right? There's a, you, you all know him. Mean, there's a popular radio host who often answers the question, how are you, with better than I deserve. Yes. Right? And, and I think the root of that statement is this Protestant idea that you can never deserve heaven, that the blessings you receive are never deserved, that everything is just benef- benevolence, mm. beneficence on God's part. Mm. That's actually not the Catholic view. The Catholic view is God actually makes you objectively worthy of reward. Now it's He's the one that does the changing. He's it all is from grace and it comes as a gift. But what the gift does is it is it objectively changes your interior life, reorients you from sin towards righteousness, so that you really do genuinely love God and neighbor. So when God says, "Well done, good and faithful servant," He's not just blowing smoke. It's not a fiction. It's not something he's imputing to you. He's actually made you objectively worthy. So it's not by faith alone. It is by charity infused into your heart. Faith is the medium that gets it there, but it's not the faith per se that saves you. It's the grace of God at work in you that saves you.
1: Beautiful. Joe, thanks so much uh, for your question via YouTube today. Call to Communion here on EWTN. Last call for your call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 2883986 hopefully we can get you in on today's program hey bar, uh, bar brand new to the EWTN religious catalog let me tell you about this a beautiful statue of Our Lady of Quebejo, uh, also known as Mother of the Word. She is Our Lady of Sorrows. The statue was created by EWTN in consultation with our friend Immaculée Ilibagiza, Rwandan genocide survivor, renowned author of the book Our Lady of Quebejo. The statue made of fiberglass, hand-painted with great attention to detail, including the chaplet of the Seven Sorrows and the beautifully colored uh, carpet of flowers under Our Lady's feet. It is a 10-inch high statue. If you want to see it, here's what you do. Go to EWTNRC.com. When you see the search box, just type in "Cabejo," which is K-I-B-E-H-O, and you'll see a picture of it, EWTNRC.com. Do check that out. All right, let's go to a question now from Lisa Marie on the Jersey Shore, watching us on YouTube today. Lisa Marie says, Please help me explain to patients that I visit at a psychiatric hospital and to my CCD 7th graders why receiving the body of Christ is not cannibalism. Please keep in mind the limited religious education of both groups and a young age. Thanks. God bless. Lisa Marie.
2: All right, so I'll answer this the in the no big word version, And then the big word version. Okay. Let me give the no big word version first. Why eating the body of Christ is not cannibalism. Because when we consume the body of Christ, we don't kill Jesus. We don't kill him. Okay. Uh, When we chew him up, he feels no pain. In fact, his body is not in any way destroyed by that. We don't metabolize Jesus. Meaning, like, I'm not eating the body of Christ so that the, the various fats and proteins could be assimilated... Uh, into my own body and 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 be transformed into my own proteins and and augment my own self. Right. Uh-huh. The way we understand the body of Christ's presence in the Blessed Sacrament, it's long gone by the time you get to metabolism. By the time you actually get to you know absorbing it into your into your uh, physiology, there's no no presence of Christ left. Now I'm gonna use the big word version. Okay. What we teach about the presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. We teach that Jesus is substantially present in the Blessed Sacrament. We do not teach that he's physically present. Mm. Notice what I said. Substantially present, yes. Truly present, yes. Really present, yes. Real presence, yes. Physical presence, no. What does physical mean? Well, physical is the normal mode of presence that we're all familiar with. It's yeah. the presence of of, of, of of Tom in front of me right now, right? One thing about Tom's physical presence he's he's there in all his quantitative dimensive properties, right? He's, he's, I, I could take a machete and I could cut Tom in half, and I could have half a Tom over here and half a Tom over there. That's not how Jesus is present in the Blessed Sacrament. If I take a knife and cut this consecrated host in half, I don't get Jesus' upper torso over here and his lower torso over there. I have all of Jesus here and all of Jesus there. It is a different mode of presence. Different mode of presence. And it's emphatically the teaching of the Church. That, that mass does not result in the death of Christ. We do not kill Jesus upon the altar. Neither do we, not, neither do we kill him by masticating him, by chewing him up. We're not, we're not destroying or crushing Jesus or causing him to bleed or suffer or any other things that would have been associated with cannibalism. We're talking about a mode of presence that, while, uh, while truly and really with us, is not there for the sake of our physical bodies as physical bodies. It is for the sake of our physical bodies insofar as they are ordered to eternal life, right, as, as, as a way of partaking and anticipating Christ's resurrection. But that, of course, is to enter into an entirely different mode of existence.
1: Okay. Lisa Marie, thanks so much uh, for your question today. L.D. is watching us on YouTube. L.D. says, please explain why Catholics should not join Freemasonry.
2: Um, yeah, thanks. Well, two major reasons that Catholics should not join Freemasonry. One, Church says you can't. So it's against the law. Okay. We obey the law. Yeah. right? Uh, but why does the Church say you can't? Well, because Freemasonry is committed to the proposition of religious indifferentism. I remember when I was in high school, I took a school trip to Philadelphia. Great time. First time I ever ate Indian food in my life was mm. on South Street in Philadelphia. Yeah. And I remember the waiter said, we have we have mild, medium, and hot And I said, I'll take hot. He said, you don't want hot. I said, I want hot. He said, you don't want hot. I said, give me hot. He says, trust me, you want medium. I said, okay, give me medium. I ate medium. And I said, pass me the water. That's funny. It was a great experience, though, great experience. Been a big fan of Indian food ever since. Anyway, we are there in Philadelphia, and one of the things that we got to do was go visit this famous Masonic Lodge in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget the tour. The guy gave us this wonderful tour, told us all about the history of Masonry, and he strongly emphasized, right, to be a Mason... You have to believe in God, but it doesn't matter which one. Mm. And we're big on that. It doesn't matter which one, right? And uh, and see, the Catholic faith says it matters which one. Sure. So religious indifferentism is against one of the cardinal principles of Catholicism, which is we believe in a triune God who became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, not only that, but Masonry historically, historically, has been has been. Adverse to uh, the Catholic faith, and especially to the influence of Catholicism in the civic order, and that's very intentional in in Masonic history. The opposition to Catholic influence has been very and a very intentional part of of world Masonry. So one of the reasons why, if you look at where Masonic lodges historically have been built, they are often built in close proximity to Catholic churches. Mm. That's not an accident. It is, as it were, to undermine Catholic influence or to prey upon Catholic members. Uh, in uh, in my own home state of Alabama, I'm in the diocese of Birmingham, but this used to be part of the diocese of Mobile. So you go down to to our metropolitan archdiocese, look at the cathedral down there. This beautiful Catholic cathedral right down the block. What do you find? Masonic Lodge. Yeah. Right. You go to St. Louis. What do they call that? The Rome of the West. Yes. Right. Beautiful cathedral, you got Jesuit Hall at St. Louis University, mm-hmm. right down the street, Masonic Lodge, right? And so uh, Catholics shouldn't join organizations that, that confute Catholic dogma and have set themselves historically against uh, the success of the Catholic project. Simple as that. Yeah. That okay. doesn't, I mean, we understand that that's not the agenda of every individual Mason. Sure, sure. Right? And they're, I'm sure there are nice people there and all that sort of thing, right? But at the level of the institution and its history, eh, we, we got nothing to do with one another.
1: LD, thanks so much for your question uh, via YouTube this afternoon. Here's another one from YouTube. Uh, Jen wants to know, how do we keep holy the Sabbath day in the commandments as Catholics if the feast day is Sunday?
2: Right. So the number one way that we fulfill that commandment is through our Sunday Mass obligation. Okay. So we worship the lord together communally as the christian church by offering the sacrifice of his body and blood that is the chief way that we fulfill our religious duties on the sabbath and and any work that we do cannot interfere without obligation conceived very broadly so you know walking in during the reading of the gospel and splitting right after the communion you know so that i can go back to the office doesn't that may fulfill the letter of the law but not the spirit which is really to to commit the day to the celebration of the lord's resurrection sure, sure. to make it a day of religious reflection and mm-hmm. and and also of relaxation and of rest and time with family and things like that but doesn't but remember remember we are christians and not jews and jesus taught us that the sabbath is made for man not man for the sabbath so we're not sabbatarians
1: mm, okay and jen thanks for watching us on youtube this afternoon here's an email from lynn I am of the belief that God knows all from the beginning of time to the end. Didn't he say to Noah when he sent the flood that if he had known how corrupt man would be, he would have not created us? If this is the case, given how rebellious we are, as well as the current state of our world, in your opinion, why did he create us?
2: Yeah, thank you. So this is an important lesson in how not to read the Bible. Ah. All right, Don't read the Bible like a fundamentalist don't read the Bible as if every statement taken out of context um, were literally true in its denotative sense. Because if you read it that way, then you have a God who doesn't know the future, because that's what the text seems to suggest as you put it. And the Catholic understanding of this is that the the Old Testament, in particular, but all Scripture to some extent, is a kind of condescension to, to human limitation, and it uses a human form of language and narrative and genre uh, you know, to convey stories that mm-hmm. that that have uh, a, a theological motive and a moral motive, but we ought not to le- read them as literal descriptions of God's um, inner essence and, and, and character. And so the dogma on God, as you correctly identified, is that God is omniscient, om- omnipresent, um, and omnipotent, um, even if sometimes in the Old Testament he's depicted anthropomorphically. Okay. But as to why God created us, he created us so that we could come to share in his own divine blessedness.
1: Alex offers this question uh, via email. Why doesn't the church change its teaching on gay marriage and abortion? If these changes were made, Catholics would be more accepted in the modern world.
2: Yeah, so um, being accepted in the modern world was, was never a real high priority for Jesus right i mean right. in christ's own ministry i mean you you'll hear different estimates about how many christians were there actually at the time of the crucifixion but you know conceivably fewer than 100 followers of christ in the world there were a lot more than 100 people in jerusalem oh, yeah. right and the majority of them killed him you know well at least the, the romans did and you know there was a fair amount of uh, support for that decision i won't i won't blame the inhabitants of jerusalem because of mm. course they weren't all universally responsible but mm. but uh you know but he um uh he wasn't worried about that and in john chapter 6 you know christ taught the the truth about his body and blood and that was deeply offensive to most of his audience that turned away and refused to follow him and he basically said well you know have a nice life yeah you know See how you do on your own? Yeah. He was not that big on, uh, on winning approval from the world. And in fact, he taught the people in parables, Matthew chapter 13 tells us, because he wanted to be obscure. And he really only revealed the depths of the kingdom of God to his, to his disciples. He revealed the secrets of the kingdom to them. So he was about quality, not quantity. And, and, uh, and so the Catholic faith has always been a countercultural faith. Now, that's different. It's one thing to say we're countercultural. Um, That doesn't mean that we have to be deliberately obnoxious. We should be countercultural in our charity, in our humility, in our virtue, uh, in our willingness to sacrifice uh, in the pursuit of justice, not in our our obdurate, obstinate insistence on beating everybody else over the head with a catechism.
1: Sounds like a good plan to me. Dr. David Anders, thank you. Thanks, Tom. Don't forget, we do this program Monday through Friday on EWTN on the radio side. 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern on uh, radio, that is. And that's uh, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out that podcast we mentioned earlier, EWTN.com slash radio. That'll open up uh, Podcast Central for you, EWTN.com slash radio. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us this time. We will see you next time here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a wonderful day. God bless.